Hunting boots are a critical component of any successful hunt. Whether walking a short distance to your blind or trudging miles through rugged terrain, your feet are carrying the load. Without the right boots, you could give up early and lose out on that trophy just over the ridge. At Midway USA, we make selecting boots for your next hunt easier. With just a few clicks of a mouse, you can decide on what's important, like waterproofing, insulation, size, width, and savings. For just about everything for shooting, hunting, and the outdoors, check out MidwayUSA.com. The 1911 is one of the most iconic firearms in history. Designed by John Browning, the 1911 was the standard-issue sidearm of the U.S. military from 1911 to 1985. While Colt produced the original, almost every major firearm company has produced its own version. It's wildly revered for its reliability, crisp trigger, and is still a favorite for all types of shooters. Whether you're looking to buy or build a 1911 and just about everything for guns, log on to MidwayUSA.com. Mobile hunters, if you're interested in upping your mobile game, then head to TetheredNation.com and check out their saddle gear. There are a few things you can actually buy that will help you become a better deer hunter or give you the freedom to hunt any tree or any situation. This is the reason why I started saddle hunting in the first place and why I use Tethered's gear. I can honestly say that Tethered's saddle gear has changed how I hunt for the better. Big tree, little tree, from the ground, it doesn't matter. I'm untethered by my gear to hunt the best setup for the situation, instead of hunting for a tree that my gear can use. My current core setup consists of the Phantom Saddle, Tethered One Sticks, and the Predator Platform, along with an assortment of their accessories. So if you want to up your mobile game, head over to TetheredNation.com. If you're like me, you spend lots of time poring over maps, looking at weather data, all in an effort to help predict when and where my best times to hunt will be. It'd be nice if there was a reliable source with all this information in one place. Enter the Spartan Forge app. Unlike some other predictive apps on the market, Spartan Forge was created from military combat intelligence experience tailored for hunters and stands at the nexus of machine learning and white-tailed deer hunting. No more man-made algorithms. This is a predictive model based on real GPS collared deer data, historical and predictive weather, and the next level of mapping imagery, all at my fingertips. I've been using the iOS app this season, and it has replaced all my other mapping tools. Visit SpartanForge.ai and sign up today, or head to your iOS or Android app store. Use the promo code TRUTH to save some money and download it today. Welcome to the Truth From The Stand Deer Hunting Podcast brought to you by Skull Brew Coffee Company. I'm your host, Clint Campbell, and you're listening to episode number 274. Today, I'm joined by my buddy, Chad Sylvester, for part two of our listener Q&A. So stay tuned. What is up, everyone? Happy Wednesday to you. Hope you are doing well. Hope you are feeling fine. Hope some of you out there had a, a chance to take full advantage of the nice weather that we had. At least, I guess on on Friday, I guess it was nice, and then Saturday was kind of kind of rainy. Uh, so maybe it was maybe it wasn't so nice. Friday was nice. We'll leave it. We'll leave it at that. But you're probably stuck at work. I uh, had a chance to get out on Sunday, do a, just a little bit of scouting. Like I mentioned, Saturday the weather wasn't great. And uh, truth be told, I spent Saturday watching the uh, NCAA wrestling tournament, so I wasn't too awfully broke up about not being able to get out and do the work that I wanted to do necessarily. Um, but did get out on Sunday, checked out a little area that I wanted to check out that was a leftover. At this point, most of my scouting is done for uh, for local. Uh, now the only thing I really need to do is make the jump into um, the Big Woods piece I need to continue to break down. Just... 
it's either been snow or uh, or rain or prior family obligations has have kept me from getting up there. Mainly snow. I was really hoping to get up there earlier um, in March, to be honest, and it just wasn't going to happen. Every time the snow would start to melt off, we would get another round of snow, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Sa- kind of the same story as last year, and I'm figuring out that's probably just going to be how it rolls up there. Uh, based on its location and stuff like that. So the last weekend here, I don't even know what the date is for that. I'm actually going to look at the calendar because I'm trying to figure out what my plans are. Uh, it looks like the weekend of the 25th of March. Hopefully, I'll be able to get up there. At least that's the plan for right now. And then have a little bit, a bit of a turkey hunt that's planned up there potentially too. And so I'm hoping to make maybe two trips between now and the opening of turkey season, make turkey season the third trip. And then I think I'll feel pretty good at that point about, you know, having some postseason stuff done. And then, of course, you know, some odds and ends stuff over the course of the summer camera checking and some more additional poking around, maybe at some new areas and stuff like that at that point. But continue to try to make a plan. Uh, going to have applications here soon coming up for hunts for this year. I'm already going to Idaho. So that's kind of in the books and ready. And then, um, still on the fence as to whether or not I'm going to try to go back to Kansas or not. I really would like to, um, redeem myself on that hunt. And it's just a really cool place to hunt. Um, but this spot in PA has kind of been calling my name and some of the inventory that I got last year. There's one spot in particular that I just feel like is going to be dynamite year over year just based on the inventory and intel that i got from this year alone and i kind of want to see if i can capitalize on that and so i'm kind of torn it ain't look ain't gonna lie a lot cheaper on gas to drive to this spot than it is to drive to kansas but you know we won't let that that necessarily deter us but uh before we jump into today's show uh have to a, a message to pass along to all you guys as i was just kind of talking about cameras and stuff like that my buddies over at exodus have a really cool opportunity. If you haven't heard me talk about it before, I will give you the deets now. Uh, what they are doing is a first time ever uh, deal where they're offering a trade-in program for the remainder of March. So the rest of this month, you can get involved if you have a if you currently own have an Exodus camera that is registered in their database. You can trade in any old Lift, uh, Lift Two, or Trek and lock in a $100 savings off the Exodus render or the render bundle. If you like the idea of trading up, here's what you'll need to do. Go to exodusoutdoorgear.com and use the code TRADEUP, that's all one word, T-R-A-D-E-U-P, at checkout to lock in your $100 savings. After the order, the Exodus team will email you a shipping label with the order number for reference to, to your email. You print that return label, put it, on your, uh, put it on the box, put the camera in the box, and then send it back to Exodus. Um, after Exodus gets the camera, they'll ship you your order. That was kind of a lot to, uh, to follow or to, to, to digest at the moment. So go to the link in the podcast notes, uh, I have in the, uh, on the blog or on the, uh, on the waypoint page and follow the instructions in that link, uh, that they have on their, uh, on their website. As you guys know, I've been using their cameras for a long time. They kick ass. If you have an opportunity or need to upgrade, uh, your current camera situation, I would definitely take full advantage of this. With that, have a cool show for you guys today. This is part number two of the listener Q&A session that Chad and I did. Uh, I want to say it was probably like three weeks ago now, roughly, that we did it. And we kind of run the gamut all over the place uh, in, in, terms of, uh, in terms of questions. Uh, this one, we actually do address the who killed Epstein, the upfront last one. Uh, I actually got a little rambunctious and mentioned that we were going to do that in the last one, but the way the, way the edit came out. 
that did not happen um, in in the last episode. So we we talk about a whole host of uh, host of things on on this this podcast. Always fun time talking through the questions that you guys send in always kind of makes us think a little bit more deeply about things than maybe we typically do. And then also brings up things that we sometimes don't, uh, don't think about. So hope you guys dig the show. And as always want to thank you all for listening. Um, all right. This next one is a uh, Vander Nade Vander Vander Vandernal DJ. Sorry, man. Butchered your name. Um, how do I see more bucks outside the rut? Man, that's like eight million dollar question, <laughs> right? <laughs> DJ, when you figure that out, man, you'll be a millionaire because yeah. you could you could you could sell that that theory and those concepts and those tactics to Anybody. three million three million whitetail hunters. You could probably start yourself a workshop if you'd like to, you know, on that on that one. <laughs> um, I mean, look, I I think the earlier outside of the rut, you know, I, I I'm not going to say anything here that's groundbreaking that people haven't talked about before. You've got to find, you got to be in close to in close to betting is really what it is really what it comes down to, and you know there's a lot of you know guys who um, are successful at hunting buck beds and you know and doing things you know and, and, and getting close to beds and Greg's one of those guys he he will hunt a specific bed. You don't have to hunt a specific bed necessarily. You just need to be in the bedding area, like in general area. That, that that deer wants the bed and he probably has multiple beds in there that he's going to use on different winds and and things like that some of the stuff we talked about earlier which is playing that food game you know like what are the changing food sources you know in in the area is there a primary ag field that just got cut and now he's going to transition to stuff that's in the in the timber or whatever the case is um i mean for me the way i started having seeing bucks outside the rut is what I talked about at the beginning. And it's, it's become my favorite time of year to hunt. I, I like hunting the October lull when no one else wants to be out. And I've qualified a few different areas. I hunt specific dates related to specific spots that I found consistent activity within those date ranges in or in and around primary, primary scrapes and bedding. Like that's what I focus on. That's the way I've been able to the past two years, at least have, mature buck encounters in the early part of October. Um, I'm not a great bed hunter. It's something I always try to work on. Uh, I'm just not great at it. Um, so I, I rely on, you know, uh, long-term data and finding spots that I can, that I can hunt based off of, off of, uh, off of date and activity. And that's yeah. really, that's really my kind of, my strategy. There's a lot of ways to skin that cat. Uh, but that's just the way that I found, at least for me, that I can, uh, have the type of encounters that I want to have during that time of year. Yeah. Yeah. You have to be, I mean, you have to be in close to where they're laying their head during the day. And that's, you know, that's what it boils down to. Um, you know, the problem with that is if you're not hunting public or if you're on a limited, I should say not even not, it's not a public versus private thing, but it's a, it's a size thing. If you're yeah. on a piece with a limited size and they're not bedded on you, like you are in a very difficult spot. Yeah. And I think you're screwed way essentially. Yeah. I mean, I think the only way to overcome that is to do what you said and use historical data from Mm -hmm. previous years around those daylight activities and kind of keep your fingers crossed that all the variables, the the weather, the habitat, the pressure, all that stuff, food source remain consistent for that for that daytime activity to occur in, you know, in the present season. Um, I think those are the only only two ways you're going to find success. 
Yeah. The only thing I would add is just like when I say finding those food sources and, and stuff like that, like, you know, ideally you want them in and close to where they're, where they're bedded. Cause the reality is, is if you're not close to, to Chad's point where they're laying their head down and you're not within a hundred to 150 yards of that chances of you yeah. seeing them in daylight are pretty slim, you know, yes. unless they, unless they make a mistake or it just happens to be a day that like a front comes through or something like that. And they just happen to move a little bit early. If you're a moon person, maybe you play the moon. I'm, I'm not, you know, so I, I, I don't really pay much attention, uh, attention to that. The only other way is like finding like that transition area that they want to be in before they actually make their big move, like for the evening, for the evening. And that usually is also a place of a, of a kind of, I won't say a destination food source, but it's their transitional kind of feeding, feeding area. Also usually very close to bed, but you can, it might be a, a spot where you can get, get them to pull out a little further from bed a little earlier. So, you know, looking for those kind of like transitional places that they're going to want to spend time before they make their big move. But other than that, I mean, you got to be typically you got to be in type. Um, anything else to add to that? Or we got that one. No, I'm, that's I mean, I think cool. that's pretty much it. Cool. Um, we already covered doe hunting. Oh, here's our buddy, uh, old Kevin Vistason chiming mm. in here. Uh, did Epstein kill himself? He asks. <laughs> it, this is going to be another, uh, arrow, uh, arrow answer. A little rabbit hole. It, it is dude. Cause I've read, I just read, uh, the perversion of justice, which was written about Epstein. And then I've also listened to the, the Daryl, uh, I forget the guy's last name. Um, Jocko Willink and Daryl, damn, I can't think of the guy's last name. Um, but they have a specific podcast. I think it's called The Unraveling, where okay. they go in and do a bunch of uh, research and have like these long debates and present this information. And like Epstein was funneling money for the freaking CIA for, I mean, freaking 20 some years, like into mm -hmm. the Iran contraband, like just wild and crazy things. Yeah. Um, so, no, he did not kill himself. Yeah. No, we'll keep it short. He, he, did, he did not. I mean, just yeah. any, any common any person with common sense would go like, Hmm. I mean, aside yeah. from like the other stuff and like, I mean, he was connected to like old man Bush, who was the director of the CIA and like all that stuff, right? Like that's, you know, you can go down the wormhole of that stuff, but if you just look at it in real terms, um, none of the security guards saw anything. You have a high profile. Yeah, they were sleeping. <laughs> yeah. They were sleeping. Uh, high profile prisoner who, probably should have like 24 hour security detail at that point. You would, you would think, right. Yeah. Um, might be a guy you want to keep alive because he's got a lot of dirt on a lot of people. And just so happens that at while the, while the guards were sleeping, all the cameras happened to go out. Yeah. Like three of them, like there was all just the a lot time. of really convenient things that had to happen for him to, uh, for him to do that. So, uh, the short answer is, uh, I don't think so. If you think so, I've got a great piece of beachfront property. I would love to sell you in uh, Arizona. So <laughs> <laughs> anyway, uh, all right, on to the next. Um, how to hunt clear cuts that have reached pole-sized trees four to six inches in diameter and 10 plus years old. I think we both have a lot of, uh, and then similarly, just, Justin Ank asked these two questions. So that's kind of part one. Part two is uh, hunting inside clear cuts, can it be done? So you want to take a swing at this one first or you want me to? Yeah, I'll take a swing at it. I think on those older clear cuts, typically what we see um, that they really start to lose their value as a whole once, and again, this I guess some of this depends on the growing season. If you're mm -hmm. further north, I think the the time 
the time period changes with the with less daylight, you know, shorter uh, growing periods. But kind of in that southern Ohio, southern Indiana, northern Kentucky, maybe southern Pennsylvania, um, those types of areas. After five years, we really see the activity in the cuts kind of um, kind of retract, mm-hmm. and I think that it's from you know that that regeneration. Um, number one, it becomes so thick that a lot of times deer in box can't just navigate through it mm-hmm. without having, you know, uh, a hell of a hard time, yeah. number one. And then number two, I think that as that stuff starts to age, uh, a lot of that browse is, you know, naturally growing and the browse level just becomes uh, too high for them to use. Like there's, a, there's other easier, more attractive uh, food sources there. So I, after that five-year mark, we see we see the attractiveness drop on those cuts, but deer are still using the edge. Like going back to yep. um, one of the previous answers about like, what are you, what, is, what are the, what are you looking for as a starting point when you're e-scouting? Those older cuts um, have tremendous edges. We'll see deer bed on those edges. We'll see, um, you know, scrapes on those edges. We'll see all, just rant, just not random, but general deer sign along those edges. So, they still will use it, um, but in a different manner. When when you're you're you're, you're looking at cuts with um, you know uh, high stem count, fast uh, hardwood regeneration, um, hunting in cuts. Man, there's so much that plays into that. I think if you have the topography and um, clean access and exits, I think that you can do it. I have not ever had very much success i've had encounters inside of clear cuts but to get in clean um visually and audibly without being recognized man i've had a hell of a time doing that it's very very difficult in the stuff that we're in and quite frankly like i've not had any success yeah now i would i would echo you know everything that you that you just said especially about hunting inside the clear cuts can it be done sure you know there's some setups that that I've kind of scouted out that potentially would be good inside of clear cuts. Um, and I have a little strategy on how to find these, but they are just incredibly hard to access and get into. Like, it's just, it, it's nearly, it's nearly impossible, especially when you're talking about like October, like even now with like the leaves and stuff off and it's as bare as it's going to be, it's still hard. Um, you know, and so just magnify that with, you know, all the stuff on the tree. So is it possible Sure. I mean, if I knew that there was a big deer that was in there using it and it was like the one place I could kill him, then I would figure out a way. Um, but I, you know, again, if like if he's bedded in there, it's like and you know that then how is he getting there and what's his exit trail? You know what I mean? Like, right. so you hunt him, on, hunt him on his way out, you know, or hunt him on his way in, in the morning, whatever the case is, you don't have to necessarily be in there. I would say that there's value to scouting the insides of the clear cuts. You know, if you can, if you can get in, um, you know, because it'll tell you, it's told me a lot about a specific spot because I've used like these little water ingress areas that kind of wash out some of the, uh, some of the foliage. It makes it easier for me to get into and then I can get in and then typically it'll flood in the spot and it'll kill everything like where it just becomes like swamp grass and stuff like that kind of in the, in the center of it or in a low lying spot. And in there, I can really kind of see definitively like how they're using that cut, how they're getting in and out of it. Cause all the trails kind of like coalesce there and then you can kind of see like mm-hmm. the spider web from there where they're going right and then when you see that you know at least me it's like i sit there and i look at it and i think about all right well 
what wind would they use these on and where would they be coming from or where would they be going? And I can figure out like, is this a coming or going trail? And then what wind would that trail be, you know, for? And so you can start to use that for like puzzle piece building and stuff like that. And that's mainly what I would use the inside of the cut for would be to, to, to check that out. As far as like, you know, that age of cut, I do have some cuts around uh, where I live that are in that age range. And I still find some value in them only because there's not a lot of other adequate kind of uh, cover and or habitat that's uh, that's near it, I guess, is one is one way to say it. So it's still even though it's not great, it's the best that's available. And and so they're and so they're still kind of uh, using it to a degree. But one thing that I've kind of learned and figured out on some of these cuts that I that that are near me that maybe are of a, an older age cut that isn't as good as it could be. Is that you know when someone's doing habitat work on their farm or whatever, and they're and they're knocking stuff down. Let's say for example, right? They're maybe they're doing some select cutting or whatever, and maybe it's along a field edge. Because if you think about a clear cut in terms of like kind of an edge, like Chad said, it's it's a natural edge, and a field edge is a natural edge. A lot of times, what people will do when they're doing habitat work is they'll do edge feathering around that to make like a brushy kind of uh, buffer between the actual field edge the edge feathering that is the buffer and then the hard edge that's created by whatever cut they did or whatever habit habitat improvement they've done. What I've started doing is looking for those clear cuts that might be too old. And do they have that natural edge feathering around it to where they've got like this adjacent kind of brush. It's not clear cut, but it's just like the brush that kind of like came along with the equipment that had to be in there to do the cutting that kind of, you know, let's just say damaged or, you know, uh, turned over the soil in those areas to kind of create, regenerative growth that isn't cut related so that's the one thing that i will look for that i've kind of had to learn to look for around me because the cuts are a little bit older so um what do you think of that is that uh is that something you see in some of the places uh that that, that uh some of the cuts you're hunting too um sometimes i i think in the in the areas that we're hunting cuts there's a there's a pretty good um timber management program in place where they're continuously cutting yeah. different areas of the forest so there's you know there there's logging activity base just about year round yeah so there's like if you were to draw uh you know get on onyx or look at look at a map and take a clear cut that was cut three years ago and draw a two two mile radius around that um there's going to be other cuts that are newer in in that two mile radius so there's like i guess there's a little bit of pooling and drawing power um because they're you know, again, going back to the big woods, there's not a whole lot of structure. There's not, a, there's not ag, so the, the food sources are limited. So you can look at those cuts, those newer cuts, again, in, in that area, one to five years old, almost as a giant freaking food plot or an ag field, especially through yeah. summer, at least until that vegetation starts to dry out, acorns start to drop, and then, you know, things kind of shift a little bit. Um, but we do see, a, we do see some of that in, you know, again, if, if that clear cut is pole sized timber, um, one of the things that uh, I haven't seen this, but Steve Shirk uh, up in Northwest Pennsylvania has talked about those cuts that are 15 to 20 years old after the, that pole sized timber starts to shade out the understory, mm-hmm. um, where that starts to uh, become, again, with no, no sunlight, that, that understory, that high stem count stuff starts to die off um, and becomes a little more open. He actually sees that type of cut or that age of cut being used again more for bedding, hmm. uh, bedding opportunities, specifically around those edges, because 
naturally, like like to your point about the field edges, like when you think about where the sun penetrates the ground or hits the ground the most, it's typically a, a, around an edge. Like if you were to walk around an ag field or or um, uh, uh, maybe a fallow field or whatever that meets hard timber, yeah. usually that first ten yards or so has the highest stem count, and that's from the you know just the sun naturally you know hitting the forest floor in those areas. And he's seeing that type of um, habitat diversity in those older cuts related to bedding. Hmm. I personally haven't seen that a ton uh, because again I'm focusing on that that younger stuff, but um, that is something that other people are saying is is valid and, and and they're seeing uh they're seeing deer use it so there there must be something to it right yeah and it could just be the difference in where you're at versus where he's at like being further south like the growing season's a little bit different and so right. it might be just a little bit more just in general more regeneration in 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 general like overall um all right, so those are the hunting-related ones, man. We've got some camera-related questions, and I've got the camera guy on the line. So I think we're going to talk some cameras and camera strategy. If, you're, if you can dig it, can you dig it? Let's do it, man. Don't, uh, don't get your hopes up, though. Don't, don't threaten you with a good time? We're going to talk <laughs> some good. <laughs> All right. Um, this fellow writes in, and I can't see his name because I cut it off. Uh, should I keep trail cameras out all year? If not, what are the best months to have them? So you are the trail camera guru, so you can you can swing at this one first. Yeah, I mean you're not um, you're not doing yourself any disfavors by leaving them out all year. But from a, maybe a cost perspective, I think that there is a window between now and May where you're probably not getting a ton of relevant information. Um, if you've ran trail cameras there in the past. So the way we look at this is if it's a new area that we know nothing about, we're going to leave those cameras out 365. We want to know, um, you know, from, I guess, dating from January 1 through December 31st, we want to know what those deer are doing in the late season, when they're dropping sheds, how they're recovering, and then how fast that they're starting to grow. And then also um, those fawn, those fawn dropping dates, like when it comes to later part of May, beginning of June, we want to know when those fawns are dropped because you know that, you know, the gestation period of a whitetail is roughly 201 days or just say 200 days. Um, so if you catch a new fawn that's a couple of days old, then you can backdate that to know when that doe is bred and kind of give yourself uh, a better understanding of what is going on there as far as, you know, doe breeding, peak rut, um, breeding activity based on those, on those fawn dates. So that's something in May, later part of May, beginning of June that you can, um, you can gather from trail cameras that, you know, most people are just so focused and concentrated on, you know, getting pictures of bucks. I think that a lot of times that's overlooked. Um, outside of, you know, getting that initial data set, the, the, the data points for that first 12 month cycle. Um, I, you know, for the most part, if you're familiar with that piece, I think that you could go from June, uh, put your cameras out in June. You have a card check in the later part of July, and then you have a, a card check after the 20th of August uh, to kind of get your summer inventory and then you can roll into your, you know, your in-season strategy. And I say that that August 20th date very specifically because one of the things that we've seen, and I'd never put this together until I heard Mark Jury speak on this. Um, Mark had this theory or concept where bucks that did not summer on him would make kind of a late summer excursion to check out their fall range um, around that August 16th, 17th, 18th time frame. 
So he made sure that any of the cameras he pulled later part of summer, he would never do that before August 20th. And I never put that together until I was hunting that big specific deer. He mm-hmm. would show up. <clears throat> he would show up on those dates every single year, year over year over year. And he'd be there for two days, gone, and he shows back up in October. And then when I heard Mark talk about it, that like instantly clicked with me. Um, so that's that's one thing I would say. If like you're not running trail cameras in summer, you're probably missing some data points telling from those bucks telling you that, hey, I'm still alive. Uh, I'm not summering here, but I plan to be back here um, in the fall, back in my fall range. Yeah, yeah. Well, and it's no surprise. Like I, I have a lot of the same trail camera strategies strategies that you do um, as far as how I use them. Now, for me, you know, I, I try to run them, uh, you know, as many of them as I can all year round. Like there's a handful of them that I've had out uh, all year that are still that are still out now. Um, you know, what I what I do is, you know, during rifle season, I do go pull a bunch of them because I just don't want them to get stolen. And then I try to get back out, you know, shortly after, you know, rifle season's over in Pennsylvania and, and get truck cameras back out because I want to see who potentially made it through gun season and who might be around around for next year. Um, and, and those I'll only put out in kind of like key spots. It won't be like, you know, like a normal kind of deployment. It'll just be in kind of key locations, um, you know, whether it's a primary scrape or, you know, a, a bedding area or whatever the case is that I, that I want to keep tabs on and maybe keep tabs on a, a particular deer. Um, and then from there, actually, when I put my trail cameras out, I actually put them out starting kind of now. So I'll pull most of them, you know, right around uh, Thanksgiving. And then they'll all start to go back out right around end of February, beginning of March. Um, just because, and when I say that, it won't be necessarily all of them. It'll, it, a lot of times what it is is that um, on when I'm... S- scouting either a new piece or a new area and i think that i've come across the community scrape i want to qualify it so a lot of times what i'm doing is i'm hanging a trail camera on that in you know late february early march and then i'm going back to pull it you know when i get ready to set the rest of my cameras out sometime like around end of april beginning of may you know to start watching for velvet and stuff like that um because what i want to see is when i pull that camera that i set out in march or february if deer are hitting that licking branch or what I thought was a community scrape in, in, you know, February, March, in May, while I was getting ready to set out cameras or April, you know, now I have a pretty good feeling now that that's a community scrape if they're hitting yeah. it in the off season. And so now I just kind of mark that as like, all right, I've got another spot that I know is going to be one of those places where I'm going to get great inventory and it's probably going to be huntable just based on the activity and in the, in the time that people are, or the, that deer are hitting that, hitting that scrape. Now I've had community scrapes that have kind of turned off for periods of time too. That'll be a learning process through that first year to understand how it's being used and how consistently throughout the year. But I use this time uh, in the off season to really kind of use my cameras to kind of qualify community scrapes that I think that I've, that I think that I've found. And then other than that, I kind of use them exactly how Chad, how, uh, how, how Chad has mentioned. Yeah. One, uh, one additional, I guess, talking point, if people have theft kind of top of mind, and I, I think this, well, I know this relates more to private ground than it does public, but, um, you know, with our theft policy, this is something we track is, you know, how many cameras get stolen every year because, mm-hmm. you know, we, re- we replace those at cost or whatnot. Um, and we see more cameras being stolen during now like so the spring period late Mm -hmm. late february march april is when we see the majority of cameras being stolen on private ground Hmm. and i think that uh, to me that relates to 
trespassing um, due to the increase of shed hunting, uh, maybe mushroom hunters or people digging up, trying to dig up ginseng. Um, they get their picture taken. They know they're not supposed to be there. Boom, they, they take your camera. So if, if, if this is just like, a, I guess, a, a general talking point, if theft is top of mind and you have private ground, uh, I would say take your cameras down right now unless you want to risk the, the chance of that camera being stolen in hopes that you get a identifiable photo or video to kind of to kind of handle uh, handle that in a, in a legal manner. Right. Um, it's kind of kind of up to you, but that's definitely um, some some data that we see hold true year over year over year on on the theft side. Right. Yeah. I actually went to like locking most like I shouldn't say most of them, locking a lot of them up because of that, mm. you know, just like not private ground trespassing, but just. I had more trail cameras stolen this year than I had probably the past like five years combined. Um, and so I was like, all right. And it's not so much the camera necessarily as shitty as that is to say, it's more so the card. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> you know, cause I'm like, I got all this data and all this Intel that I really want. I'm like, I can get another camera. I can't get that information that I'll never see. Exactly. You know, so fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. Uh, this next question is uh, where to set cameras up uh, for scouting missions in March for upcoming out of state trips. You want to take the swing at this one first? Or you want me to? Yeah, no. Uh, yeah, go ahead. Yeah. Uh, um, hear your, your perspective on it. Yeah. So, I mean, I think I just kind of covered, you know, uh, how I kind of use them in the off season. You know, I, I think you have to ask yourself a couple questions. Like, are you going to make it back out to move them or not? Um, how well do you know the place that you're, uh, that you're going? Uh, and what time of year do you plan to hunt it if you're not going to go back to be able to move cameras? Mm -hmm. You know, I think that those are all kind of things you need to ask yourself first. And just for the sake of this question, I'm going to assume they're making a scouting trip in March. They're probably not going to get back until they're going to hunt it would be my guess. Right. Um, and so I'm going to assume then at the same time that you're probably going for the, the rut because that's typically when most people are going to take their, take their vacations. Depends on how many cameras you have. I know that these are a lot of dependencies I'm throwing out there, <laughs> you know, but you know, I think if you have very, very limited cameras, I would say you're going to, and again, we're assuming you're going to be there, you know, during the rut, I would assume you're going to want to likely set those up as though they were fall cameras. At least that's what I would do. I would spend time scouting. I would try to find community scrapes and I would try to set those cameras up on those community scrape areas related to those community scrapes. I would try to find um, the funnels that were kind of, or pinch points that are leading to and from those areas. I'd spend a lot of time e-scouting first and try to figure out, do I kind of get an idea, you know, where the best betting opportunities are related to those specific spots. Um, I would try to locate some doe bedding and I would try to put some cameras, you know, a camera or two in and around, you know, uh, where I think a doe family group is, is, is spending time. So I have at least like a doe group that I, that I know is in the area that I can try to play off of potentially. Um, 
also somewhat depends on how much time you're going to spend scouting. If it's like a two day trip, you know, then you're really going to have to take some flyers. If you're going to spend like a week scouting somewhere or something like that, then you probably can be a little bit more strategic or precise with you know where you're going to, uh, where you're going to, uh, you know, place, place your cameras. And then if I have one, if there's a food source that's around somewhere, I'm probably going to try to set one there because I just want to get an inventory of what's in the area, like what quality is, is, uh, is in the area. But I'm, I mean, if I, if I have limited cameras, I'm probably going to just really focus on those kind of elements that I'm going to be able to hunt off of during the course of, during the course of my trip. Um, I think that would probably be my approach. At least that's the way I've kind of approached it in general. Whenever I've hung cameras out of state, um, you know, it's typically been that, that type of setup. Yeah, I would agree with all, everything that you, everything that you mentioned, um, assuming that they're, you know, taking a trip to postseason scout. And then the second trip would be during, you know, obviously during season, um, you're going to want to hunt hot sign come October, come November. So I think from a trail camera standpoint, like the goal there is to gather inventory. Like you want, you want inventory of what, what, what bucks are going to be there in the fall. Um, you know, the summertime stuff, it could help you, uh, it's kind of a crapshoot. Some deer are going to relocate. We know when those bachelor groups break up, some deer might stick around. Um, it's, you know, you, you don't really know that that's one of the, the downsides of going into a new piece. It's kind of not necessarily fly by night, but a lot of it's MRI. So I think it boils down to inventory purposes. Like you mentioned, fall food sources and scrapes, primary scrapes, and then understanding what deer are in the area and, and, and base your hunting off of, uh, you know, most recent information, scouting your way in, reading hot sign and how that relates to what you, what you're getting on trail cameras. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, if it's a, if it's a one-time trip, you know, you're going to be, uh, the trail camera data is going to be helpful. Um, but because it's not longitudinal or long-term data, it's not going to be super, super actionable it's going to be a guidepost to say like, yeah, there's either deer here that I'm willing to hunt or, or not, you know, or I need to kind of move on, um, to a degree. Now, if you plan to make this trip multiple times, you know, over the course of the next couple of years, then I think, you know, now you're in business and you can start to build a little bit of a database to try to start to, you know, figure some stuff out and play some of those date games, because what you might learn is that, first week of November isn't when you should be there. It should be the third week of October. You know, like you start to learn those, those types of things, but you only get that by having that, having that data. And so, you know, if you're a guy that wants to take a trip every year, um, you know, and and you want to have, and you want to kind of learn a piece as like almost like a second home, if you will, then I would run cameras, you know, in my fall spots year over year for a handful of years until I kind of get some really strong data points that I feel like I can have some, you know, a, a, a fair shot at success, I'd probably go into it knowing that it's, it's a likely like a two-year plan, you know, at, right. at, at minimum, you know, to um, at least maybe get on consistent, consistent deer. Um, right. What terrain features, this is Luke MCD 44, what terrain features should you focus on putting trail cams on and what time of year? I think we kind of covered that in that, in that last one, but if you want to, if there's any nuance to this one that you, that you feel we didn't cover. No, well, one of the things that we haven't talked about are thermal hubs. Mm, yeah, like important. down in bottoms with, um, you know, when you have a bunch, when you're in hill country and you have a bunch of points kind of dumping down into a bottom, a lot of times you go down in those bottoms, you'll see a lot of n- nighttime activity. 
Uh, a lot of nighttime sign. You'll find, you know, trails or runways coming down off those points, crossing that bottom. Um, you'll find tracks, you find rubs, scrape lines, you, you know, all of that. So I think from a, from an inventory perspective and efficiency standpoint, that's an awesome place mm-hmm. to throw a camera up and, and get some data on how those deer are using that. Um, and it can also not just how they're using it, but in how they're using it in relation to bedding and on what point, you know, a lot of times in hill country, those bucks, deer in general are going to bet on those points. Um, and just having a camera down in those crossings, you know, if a deer's down there an hour after dark or an hour before sunup, like you have a very good idea of where that deer is bedded, um, or at least in that, in that, in that general direction. Yeah. So on top of the things that we've, talked about previous in some of these previous answers that would be one thing that i would strongly urge people to do is uh look at some of those thermal hubs and and make sure you have cameras when the sign is apparent yeah yeah no that's a great that's a great point um you know i think the other thing too is that you mentioned there is and it's not related necessarily to terrain and features uh you know per se we talked about benches earlier like i i place cameras on benches uh especially in this new spot that i'm that i'm kind of sussing out, you know, last year and this, this upcoming year, um, because it was related to a cut and it was related to a place where I was kind of getting, uh, nocturnal images. And I wanted to see if I moved in this general direction on this different feature, if I would get daylight pictures in, in, the, uh, and I did the one thing that you mentioned about what time are they coming through when they're hitting these certain crossings or whatever. I think that that's important aside from the terrain and the feature. I think a lot of people look at these pictures of bucks and they're like, Oh, that's a cool picture. He's a big right. deer. And right. then that's all the further that it goes. But there's yeah. a ton of info that's in that aside from like the, the weather and, and, and whatever. If you look at what time that deer's coming through, like Chad said, and you can kind of look at a map and say, well, where's the next best bet? I mean, if that deer's coming through it, let's say sunup is, uh, you know, I don't know. Let's say it's seven o'clock. You know, let's say we're like late October or whatever, you know, early November before the time change, whatever. It's like seven o'clock or something like that. And that buck's coming through at 6.38 a.m., right? Pretty good chance you're not far off from where he's bedded. You know, exactly. like, you're, you're, you're probably 100 to 150 yards, 200 at the furthest from where he's probably laying down. You know what I mean? Uh, and, and 200, in my opinion, at that point would be a stretch. It's probably more like 100. And so, you know, making sure you're paying attention to that timestamp you know, when that deer is coming through, when he's leaving can tell you a lot about where he's spending his daylight hours. So I think we covered that one pretty well. What do you think? Good. Yep. Yeah. Cool. Uh, uh, setting cameras long-term months or longer discuss your settings that you prefer delays, et cetera. Well, that's a good question. That's one that I don't really ever get asked very often. Um, yeah, I think, uh, you know, I think there's a lot of people that set are starting to use long-term uh, trail camera strategies and long-term sets, which in my opinion, that is the best way to use standard SD card cameras. It's in a long, long-term fashion. I think the data points are much more accurate. They're unaltered and you get a much clearer picture of what is going on there through the entire hunting season. Um, when it comes to settings, you know, I am always... I always take the approach that I want as much data as possible. So I am going to run a shorter trigger delay. Um, 
you know, it depends on the t- where it's set at. If it's on a community scrape, I'm going to run a stronger, long, longer trigger delay, and I'm probably going to use video mode. Um, I say longer trigger delay as in like 45 seconds, you know, 30 to 45 seconds, somewhere in that, mm-hmm. somewhere in that ballpark range. Um, and some of that is in fear of that licking branch, or you know, a lot of times I'm running them on uh, scrapes underneath beech trees where they're holding their foliage a lot longer. You know, yep. the wind starts blowing, and all of a sudden you get your SD card full of, uh, of a false trigger. So you really got to be careful um, on on kind of every scenario is a little bit different, and you really have to make a judgment call on, on some of this stuff. But generally speaking, personally, I'm going to use photo mode more than video mode only because I know that camera is going to soak for a year. I mean, when I talk long-term, it's, it's you know, from – at the shortest from June till March right. I mean, at, at, at the shortest. So knowing that there's potential there to have a freaking crap ton of pictures. Um, and depending on your camera, you may have limited, limited SD card capacity. Um, so, you know, one or two shot burst is what I'm looking at. I don't need to have five pictures of the same Doe family group coming through there. Uh, I just have, you know, I look at a, at a trigger event as one data point, regardless of if it's five photos or three photos or one photo. Like, that's one trigger event. That's one data point. Yep. Um, so, you know, uh, make sure you have the right battery. Batteries is a big thing. Make sure that your battery setup is is on point, that you're going to get a whole season. I would not use alkaline batteries. Use lithium batteries. But then going back to the settings, shorter trigger delay. Um if I'm running in photo mode, it's going to be a one-shot burst, maybe a two, no more than two, and that's that's pretty much it. Uh, I'm going to leave all my PIR sensitivity and my flash range and everything set to high. Right. I'm not going to not going to monkey with that. I'm not going to monkey with operating hours. I want the camera to run 24/7, um, and that's kind of that's kind of it in a nutshell. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I I follow a lot of the same a lot of the same principles, you know, a lot of my cameras are out for long-term. I pretty much run any camera that is not in a pinch point, like a funnel, if you will. Uh, all of my cameras are on video mode. Um, now, granted, majority of them are set up on, on scrapes by, by and large. Um, but, you know, ones that I'd have that are set up in, you know, pinch points are just place where I'm just catching some natural travel or natural movement. Those are typically on just, you know, regular, regular picture mode. Um, my video length is usually anywhere from 20 to 30 seconds, just depending on the, the, the setup. Um, and then my delay is usually somewhere between 20 and 30 seconds as well. Kind of similar to you, you know, I'm, I don't want to get things filled up with a bunch of false triggers. So I let the, I set the trigger delay kind of longish, I guess. Um, and I don't know, for me, I just felt like that 20 to 30 second kind of time frame of video feels like enough. Cause I, I don't feel like I'm missing deer that are coming into the frame late or anything like that. I feel like it's a good, a good kind of, um, a good kind of time frame. I don't really mess with anything, you know, beyond that, like the other, the other settings necessarily, I leave them kind of all, all standard and as is the only thing that I do, you know, a little bit different. And this is, this goes outside of settings, but it, it plays into it because, you know, most like my cameras are in video mode, like I mentioned, especially over scrapes. Now I do like to use cell cameras on scrapes because of those areas. I typically don't want to intrude a lot. Right. And, and I don't like to run my cell cameras on video mode, even though the excess, the renders you can do, you can do video with, the, with those. I'm just sensitive to like having videos sent via, you know, uh, via app data plan, blah, 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 blah. What I actually do is I set two cameras up on those. 
I set a cell camera up that's just sending me real-time data, right? Um, it, you know, just that, that way I know kind of daily what's going on. And then I set a regular SD card camera, uh, either above it or below it, and I set that on video mode to get all the kind of directional coming and going because I want to see how that deer is coming in, how he's leaving. I want to see his body language. I want to see does he posture up when other bucks kind of come to the scrape. I want to get all that kind of behavioral data. And that's how I kind of do that. The only thing I'm kind of tweaking for this year, and I picked this up from Troy Pottinger, is he hangs old man's beard. I'm going to have to find something else because there's none of that in kind of the area that I have these, these scrapes. But something that's actually a directional kind of wind checker at that spot when those deer are there. Not necessarily mm, relying on like the prevailing because um, the prevailing could it could be doing something completely different in that location than what the prevailing is suggesting between, you know, prevailing wind, wind currents and thermals. They all kind of act to give you your actually wind direction in a spot. He uses old man's beard. I'm going to end up using like some type of thread or something like that. that's really light. That way, when a deer comes into that scrape, I can see which direction that thread is blowing. So I'll know the actual wind direction. It helps me wind map those areas without actually have, having to be there to wind map. Yeah, that's a that's a very 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 good tip. Yeah, so so that's that's you know settings plus I guess we'll call that that answer. <laughs> um, we're almost done here, man. I think we I think we almost uh, this one wants to know if we ever had a woman in flip flops and shorts with no with no light walk by their cameras four four miles deep in. Can't say that I have. <laughs> no. <laughs> <laughs> Again, we're gonna go back no. to the beginning here. Talk to Taylor Chamberlain. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> on that one um this one's a good one man because I, I do get asked this question uh, and i think it's i think we probably gloss over it and think that it's uh common knowledge but I, I hear a lot of people complain about this just in general but tips for keeping bugs out of out of their cameras during the summer months because you know that's oh, yeah. obviously like the worst time of year for it and plenty of cameras get ruined during that time of year which sucks because that's when you want to have them out for for velvet so i know what some tips yep. are but like why don't you take this one yeah, for sure. Yeah, there are some things you can you can certainly do. Um, we've talked on talked on this on this point multiple times, I guess, over the last seven years. But the thing that we like to do the best is just use permethrin. So the same uh, the same stuff that you're buying to spray on your clothes to keep ticks and mosquitoes and horse flies and all that nasty stuff off of you while you're doing you know anything outdoors in the, in the summertime, we're applying that stuff to our cameras. Um, you can spray that on your straps. And have that done like the day before you physically put them out. But we usually just carry a bottle with us um, while we're placing them in the field in June. And we'll spray basically around the camera. You got to be careful spraying the the, the camera itself. Um, you know, I've never had any negative reaction with that stuff being on plastic. But just, I mean, it, you're not supposed to necessarily spray it on your skin. I don't know how it's going to react to plastic. So we, we, we tend to shy away from that but just spraying that around the perimeter of the camera the base of the tree you know above the camera below the camera on the, on the camera sides just a couple of squirts um has done wonders from keeping uh ants away from keeping spiders away you know spiders will build nests like or, yeah. or spin webs or whatever in front of your lens and all of a sudden you have thousands of pictures of a spider and everything's all all blurry and blocked out you can't see anything um so permethrin is definitely um one thing you can do to keep bugs out. The other thing that we've done in the past, and you, this is probably a tip more for cell cameras or long-term strategies where you're not going back in to ever check these SD cards, but even like the powder and like the, um, the insect, like the granular, um, I'm not sure what the proper term is. It comes in like a shaker tube. Yeah. Um, I know there's like little, 
granular pellets like you sprinkle mm-hmm. out around your house, like in the mulch or around the sidewalk or whatever. Um, you could take a finger full of that stuff and actually put it inside your, your camera door. So like inside the housing, maybe where the batteries are or like with our cameras, you could just stick it right inside the, in that front door and close the camera. And that also will keep camera or keep uh, insects and bugs away from your camera. The problem is like when you open that camera up, to check your SD card, all that stuff falls out. And then, you know, in July, if you're checking that camera 30 to four weeks after you, you put it out, all of a sudden there's nothing there to protect it for the rest of the summer. Yeah. So that's, to me, that's where permethrin works a little bit better. But if it's a cell camera you're putting it out and, you know, you don't have any intentions of or need to go back in and open that camera up or check it, you can use the, the powder or the granulars, the yeah. granular form. Yeah, yeah, I mean, my my go-to is the permethrin. Like I just, like you do, I, I just carry a bottle of it with me whenever I'm out putting out cameras and stuff like that. And I spray the straps and I spray the tree around it and I'm good. Typically, if like if you're putting your cameras out in May or, you know, whatever the case is for for velvet. I mean, that's really the only time frame you have to worry about is that summer time frame. So if you're spraying it in May, like you should be good through like the prime bug season, you know, and you should be able to get on the other other side of it. And since I started doing it, I've had no problem with with insects getting in. I just for my cell cameras. I just make sure whenever I'm out putting out my like velvet cams, I just make sure to kind of go to those, make one pass through those in May and hit those all. And then they're, and they're good to go. Right. So we have two more questions, man. The marathon is almost over. We are almost, we are on the home stretch here. Tristan, uh, Tristan Widrig, I think is his name. Uh, in his Instagram post, man, he's wearing a bow tie. I think, man, he's, Fancy. fancy yeah dude fancy i don't want you doing listening to this show but uh look like you got better things to do than, than that <laughs> um his first question how far apart do you place your trail cameras from one another mm. um for me it depends on depends on the on the property and what that what the movement looks like mm-hmm. i mean i have and obviously also the amount of resources you have i mean yeah. resources as in the number of cameras I and mean, we have areas where I mean, on that one specific deer, I was hunting a couple of years ago and a mile long ridge. I think I had, I had probably eight, nine, 10 cameras spread out, spread out through there. Um, so that, you know, they're on different levels, different topography features, different heights of the ridge and, and, and things. But, um, I, yeah, that's a, that's a tough thing to answer. It, it also depends on what your objective is on that, on, on that camera strategy. Like if it's yeah. an inventory, if it's an inventory thing, um, you don't need a, a, a ton of cameras, especially if you're inventorying on, on community or primary scrapes. Um, so if there's a, if there's some type of habitat feature there, that is a focal point, something like a, a water hole, a food plot, primary food source, primary scrapes, community scrapes, uh, you can get away with a, you know, a, a smaller number of cameras. Um, so that's, that's, yeah, I mean, it's all yeah. scenario based. Like I could give 10 different examples on 10 different properties that are, that are 10 different answers. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. I think you hit the nail on the head when you said, what's your objective of your camera strategy? Like, what are you trying to, what are you trying to accomplish? What I've always kind of said to people is that as a rule of thumb, I'd rather have one well-placed camera than four poorly placed cameras. That's mm-hmm. for whatever, I, what, I, what I'm trying to accomplish. And for me, it's a lot of scrape stuff. So I'd rather have one camera on a, you know, on a really, really good scrape where I'm going to get inventory and I'm going to have, you know, be able to get some like inventory around, not just bucks that are around, but also, you know, dates that those areas, that area specifically turns on and stuff like that. Like, so to me, it's, it's quality and not necessarily quantity. 
uh, quantity does help because it allows you to kind of, I think more so than anything for me, a quantity of cameras helps me eliminate spots more so than, than find them per se. It does help me find them, but it also helps me go like, Hey, this, this is a bad spot here. I, I let a camera soak here for six months and saw diddly squat. You know, I, I think we're, I think we're good. Now you can also get bamboozled where they, where you, I had a spot like that this year. My camera was 50 yards out of the game. I moved it 50 yards and it is like a honey hole, you know? And so there's, right. a, there's a little bit of that too. Um, I don't have like a, a strategy for how far apart I, I, I place as many cameras as I feel is necessary in order to learn what it is I'm trying to learn about that spot, you know? And so yeah. sometimes it's yeah. one because I have it dialed and I'm like, I only need one. I'm good. You know? And other times, you know, there's a, there's an area that I have one, two, three, four cameras. And it's probably within like a, a stretch of maybe 500 yards. Because I'm right. trying to figure out how a specific deer is using this particular kind of like elevation line and how he's moving in between these different features. And so I'm trying to get, I'm trying to get a bead on him. And so this year I ran a handful of cameras in that area. Cause I was really just trying to figure one deer out, trying to figure out what he's doing. And I knew he was spending time there. Um, so yeah, I don't think there's a stock answer. I think it's all based on what you want, but you know, if you got them, you know, if, if you got them, smoke them, you know, like that's it's just, it. yep. yeah, that's kind of my theory. Um, this one also is from Tristan. So this is the last one. Ding, ding, ding. Going to ring the, ring the bell. Like I'm getting out of, uh, like I'm getting out of, uh, drug rehabilitation program with my 12 step program. <laughs> 13th step is ringing the bell. Um, he says, how far away do you hunt from the, from the cameras that you sent? Do you hunt right over them or are you hunting, hunting off of them? Uh, I've done both. Yeah. I think it goes back to where you, where you're running those cameras and what the objective of, of the camera is. If it's a general general location um, to gather inventory where you know most of that movement is at night, if it's like on a uh, less invasive um, location, something like an ag field, food source, inside corner, where there's not a ton of daylight activity, I'm not. I mean, if they're not moving there in the day, I'm not hunting it. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's that's the kind of that's the, the general theme there. Um, and then those more intrusive cameras, the one thing that um, that I'd, I'd like to do and I do often, I guess, is when you have historical information or, or you know of a known bedding area. So you know that like deer are bedding in this general area to basically have a camera there and kind of plot your or plan your access route to that general area where that camera is. And if the sign's saying, hey, like there's, there's deer using this. This this is you know one of the exit trails. There's the, there's rubs. There's scrapes. There's tracks. What a scat. Whatever this whatever the sign is, go check that camera. If there's daylight activity there, then hunt it. If there's not daylight at not daylight activity there, then you can make your way around that bedding area and 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 go to um go to another point. But I do think it is smart to have cameras in some of those more intrusive areas and not plan to check them unless you plan to hunt in that general area. And that kind of confirms you know what you're seeing maybe on the way in with what the camera's seeing and then that plays into your into your hunting strategy so i i I think it goes it goes both ways yeah and i i I agree and i I do both it's like i'll hunt i mean i've literally hunted the same tree that the camera was in before um because it was the tree i needed to be in and then sometimes i don't hunt you know near them i'm using them just to kind of know that deer kind of in the uh um in the area, I will say for me more often than not, 
I'm hunting more often than not close to the camera. Um, and the reason for that is, is just because I'm, I am kind of prioritizing those kind of dates and spots as opposed to a specific deer. Um, and I'm a working guy like everybody else is limited time to kind of try, try to get out. And so when I strike, I have to be kind of very strategic and it's like, it's go time. Now I know that there, this spot is going to turn on. It doesn't do me any good to be 60 yards away from that spot. When I know that that spot right there for three days is going to be the spot to be in, you know, um, because I've validated that over the course of three seasons of running trail cameras at that spot. Um, that doesn't mean that sometimes I might not set off that, you know, one thing that I've talked about, um, I forget who I was talking, uh, talking to about it. It's one way that I actually use, um, Spartan Forge's kind of predictive, like model of like, is it a transition day area day? Is it a core area day? Is it, is it a full range day in terms of like their predictive movement or whatever? And how I kind of use that is, is if I know there's a deer in the area, like this year, that one big deer I was trying to kill, I had him on some primary scrapes. He disappeared. The wind wasn't right necessarily for me to hunt the spot that I knew that he was kind of in and around uh, um, this, this particular primary scrape. But there was another area that I thought he might spend time in just based on how deer kind of travel through this area. And it wasn't, it was a, uh, I think it was either a transition day or a full range day. And so what that said to me was, was like, well, the wind isn't right there. I can't hunt him there, but Based on collared deer data in my area, with the weather conditions, what they are today, deer are more likely to move a larger portion of their range today. So what I was able to do was actually set up in another area where the wind was actually good for me. Well, you know, good for me in terms of like, I can give the deer the wind, but not kill, not blow myself up right? and still have an opportunity to hunt that deer because he was more likely than any other day, you know, or not any other day, but more likely that day to use more of his range than he was you know, other, other days. And so I was still in the game, didn't have to blow up the primary spot, but I was able to hunt using the sign, but hunt off the sign in a place that was more advantageous to me, knowing that he was more likely to be willing to get up out of his bed and move a further distance during daylight that day. And so that's when I'll start, I'll start to hunt off sign is, 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 uh, and hunt further away from sign is, is scenarios like that. But it's one of those things I want to get better at because, you know, you and I both know Nathan Killen and, and, and a lot of the guys who are just like, straight killers, the more and more I talk to them, the more and more I realize they hunt off of sign a lot of the time. Even when it's yeah. super hot, they don't set up on it. They're set up yep. 60 yards from it, 70 yards from it, whatever the case is, they're killing them, coming to or from, not at the spot. So, Right. Yeah, the only other thing I would say with the kind of the mass social acceptance of, of cell cameras and the, the, the market trend and everyone shifting towards cell cameras um, it gives you the ability to, to run those things in, in more intrusive areas. And if you're getting daylight photos from a cellular, from a cell camera, like don't over, don't like all the things we're talking about, like uh, hunting off of sign, um, reading, scouting your way in, um, don't overcomplicate it at, at the same point. So it's like a, it's a, a dichotomy. Like it's a, it's give and take and being able mm -hmm. to assess the, the actual situation, because if you have good access and you're getting daylight photos in that specific spot consistently, like don't, 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 don't overcomplicate things. Um, if you can get in and get set up and you have, you know, clean wind, like where, where you know, your setup is solid. Like it's, it's almost a no brainer. Yeah. 
Cool, man. Well, that is it. That is the two-hour marathon, brother. We are done. Congratulations. You win Woo. You you win nothing for that. Oh, <laughs> uh, hey, man, I appreciate you coming on and doing this. Before I let you get going, let people know where they can find out more about you. Let them know where they can find out more about Exodus. Yeah, exodusoutdoorgear.com, uh, across social, all things Exodus. You can find pretty much anything you want, uh, trail camera info, all kinds of blogs, all kinds of content. Yeah. That's and if you want a trail camera, exodusoutdoorgear.com is the place to get one. Get it. All right, folks, that is a wrap for today's show. I'd like to thank all of you for listening. If you haven't yet, please head over to iTunes and leave us a five-star rating and be sure to subscribe to the podcast. And while you're at it, head over to YouTube and give us a sub there as well. I'd be super appreciative if you do those couple things for me. And before I shut this thing down, I need to give a big shout out to our partners who continue to help us make this podcast possible. Tethered, Spartan Forge, Exodus, and Skull Brew Coffee Company. And until next time, we'll see y'all. All right, gang, the new Truth merch is in stock at truthfromthestand.com and on YouTube below any of the Truth From The Stand videos. I've got some new hats, beanies, t-shirts, long-sleeve t-shirts, and sweatshirts. There's even a new do-hard-shit hat for those of us who like to embrace micro-dosing adversity. So head to truthfromthestand.com and check out the new gear and use the code TRUTH, T-R-U-T-H, and save yourself some cash on the new gear.